We had a great weekend last weekend, a very busy weekend with Justin in town, the men's breakfast and prayer night and, and all of that. But I'm excited to kind of get back into, you know, into our normal routine, um, such as it is, and moving back into the study of, of Acts. We spent the last seven weeks you know, outside that and studying you know, Christmas things and New Year things, and including our New Year series on growth throughout the month of January, and then we had a guest speaker Last Sunday, and even though we are done with that series, I, I, do want, I, I don't want you to lose sight of 2024 as a year of growth for you personally and for us as a church. So, man, implement the things that we focused on during that study and make them a matter of prayer in your life. And, and I can't wait to see what God does this year. I, I have great expectations, and I hope you do too, and, and I hope that you're praying uh, to that end. I certainly am. Uh, but part of the growth step that we all need to take includes just us being present and hearing all that God has for us out of this current study of the book of Acts. We're going to be in this book for the, for the entire year. You know, we were pretty much in it the entire year last year. And we'll take a couple breaks uh, here and there like, like we did in 2023. That will be our ongoing approach until we finish this study sometime in, in 2025. So, you know, it's, it's 28 chapters. It's, it's, a long chap, it's a long book, but it's an important one. Um, and so we'll keep moving forward, you know, assuming, assuming the Lord tarries. And I, I don't know if he will, but we're going we're gonna to plan like he will and live like he won't. I think that's the way we're supposed to do that. So, so we'll keep plugging away like that. But Acts chapter 10 is another very important chapter uh, in this book. As, as I told you before, when we, before we took the break from this study. We're in the middle of the transition section of this transition book, right? So the first seven chapters had a Jewish focus with Peter leading the charge, preaching the kingdom of heaven from Jerusalem. Once we get to Acts chapter 13, through the end of the book, it's going to have a Gentile focus with Paul leading the charge, preaching the kingdom of God to the uttermost. And, and so Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we're, we're in the process of seeing that play out as they move outside of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and then ultimately to the uttermost. And, and the move outside of Jerusalem started in, in chapter 8. Because that's, again, this, those 8 through 12 is sort of the transition as we see things moving. It's all a transition book, but there's you know, this kind of primary transition section. So in chapter 8, was the first time the apostles did venture out of Jerusalem and moved into Judea and Samaria, and we saw the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, another very important chapter. You know, there are a lot of important, important chapters. Again, 10 is another one, but chapter 9 was, and as we saw the conversion of, of Saul of Tarsus, the man that had been the biggest persecutor of the church up to that point, he gets saved. And then God reveals to Saul the plan that he has for his life. But while he's getting ready for everything that God has ahead for him as the apostle to the Gentiles, we see Peter come back into focus at the end of chapter 9. You know, Peter has, had disappeared for just a minute. And then he's back in at the end of chapter 9 and he performs a couple miraculous healings as, as an apostle. And those healings pictured some great prophetic truths for Israel. And how that even though they had rejected Christ, and God was moving away from them as a nation for a while, he will still ultimately save them at his second coming. But today, we enter Acts chapter 10. In chapter 10, Peter is still the leading character. You know, it's, it's so interesting. There's so many things we could look at in this chapter. We saw in, at the end of chapter 9 how, you know, those two miracles he performed were very, very similar the two miracles that Jesus performed in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. And today we're going to see him, you know, interact. Well, we're not going to see it today. But in this chapter, we're going to see him interact with a centurion. You know, Jesus did the same thing in that same passage. There's some, there's some great parallels that we won't even really be able to get into with respect to what Jesus was doing and why he was doing it and what Peter was doing and why he was doing it. But Peter is still the leading character at this point, and, and in this chapter, which we'll, we'll cover over about, I think, five weeks, Peter is going to lead to Christ a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And this is a really big deal. 
Because Cornelius wasn't a Jew, and Peter was the apostle to the Jews. But in this chapter, God reveals some major truth to Peter about the dispensational change that is afoot. And it's no coincidence, it's no accident that it's Peter who takes the message of Christ to Cornelius. Because according to Matthew 16, 19, Peter is the one to whom Christ gave the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now that is a vastly misunderstood and misapplied passage. I want to look at it very briefly. We don't have time to really dive into this, but I want to give you the surface information and then you can study on your own. But in, in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 18, Jesus says, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth thou shalt be loosed in heaven. Now again, we don't have nearly the time. It's not the point of today's message to, to dive into, into this passage. We're not studying Matthew. But I, I, I will say very clearly, and you'll have to do the study on your own, but these verses are not declaring Peter to be the first pope of the church, as some claim. Peter is absolutely not the rock being referenced, and that's true by grammar, and that is certainly true by comparison of Scripture with Scripture. As you compare Scripture with Scripture, it becomes very clear that Christ is the rock upon which the church is built. But again, you know, it's not the point of this study today. But what the, the, the next verse says, verse 19 says, was that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And please don't miss the specific wording. The kingdom of heaven is not heaven itself. We, we've talked about this. We talked about this at the beginning of this book. But the kingdom of heaven is that physical, literal kingdom to be, be ruled by Jesus when he returns to the earth during the millennium. And again, we, we, we've talked about that some. We talk about it in great detail in, in our MTT classes and our LFBI classes. So if that doesn't make sense to you, it's okay. Keep listening. Once I, get, once I move past this part, this introduction, the sermon, rest of the sermon will be much easier to understand. It will be much easier to follow. But Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And they were to be used to open the door of faith to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Because both will be present during Jesus' kingdom reign. And that was always the case, by the way. You can, you can see that throughout the Old Testament. And Peter used those keys to open the door to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. We went through that in over many weeks. And he will use the keys to open the door to the Gentiles, starting with Cornelius here in Acts chapter 10. And that's why it's Peter witnessing to Cornelius and taking the, the, this gospel to the Gentile and, instead of Paul or Philip or someone else who, you know, it may make more logical sense. No, it's Peter for a very specific reason. And that is an overly simplistic overview of, of what is happening in this chapter. You know, Matthew is one of our LFBI classes, and we go into much more detail over, you know, the course of an hour and a half to, you know, talk about, you know, these types of things. So this is, you know, you know this is, that's a two-minute, you know, overview. But, so it's overly simplistic, an overly simplistic overview of what's happening. But you need to know that this is a noteworthy occurrence of what's happening in this chapter. Uh, you also need to know that as we begin this chapter today, we're just going to be introduced. It's going to take us some time to work through this. We're just going to be introduced to Cornelius, the, the man that Peter's going to lead to the Lord in the coming weeks. It's going to take us a few weeks to get there. But, but today and then also next Sunday, we're going to see God prepare the two main characters for that conversion. And we're going to see the preparation of Cornelius today and then the preparation of Peter next Sunday. And, and both of those passages are going to give us great insight into how God works in the lives of people to accomplish his will. So this morning, through this introduction to Cornelius, we are going to see the preparation for change. The preparation for change. That's the title of today's message. That's what we're going to learn today. Because before this chapter ends, Cornelius is going to be a changed man in the best of ways. But there are some things that we see in his life that prepares him for that or gets him ready for that change. 
And so I put this next statement on your outline sheet because the truth is change through growth is something all of us should continually be seeking. Change through growth is something we all should be seeking. And change is something a lot of us are are hesitant about. We don't like change. And naturally, we don't want to change. And we are who we are. And we don't want to change. And listen, I understand that, that not all change is good. But a change that brings you into a relationship with God or a change that brings you closer in your existing relationship with God, that is absolutely good. There's no better change. And so if there's change that we need to take place in our life so that we can get closer to God, well, we should do it. And this is the type of change that we're talking about today because that is the type of change we're going to see in Cornelius. And the truth is, the lack of a desire for positive change, I think it's one of the major problems in today's form of lukewarm Christianity. We don't live a life like Justin talked about last Sunday, where we are constantly evaluating ourselves and, and then being honest with ourselves and admit where we're at with the Lord. And we don't do that because that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to be honest and look in the mirror, and so most of us don't. And instead, we convince ourselves that we're okay how we are. And so we don't grow, and we don't change, and that is just, it's an epidemic, it's a system of of this Laodicean church age in which we find ourselves. And not really being honest, and not really seeking the Lord with what he would have for us to do. And just being okay with being where we're at, and then doing whatever mental gymnastics we need to do to convince ourselves that that's what God wants. And so we remain stagnant, or even worse, we dive further away from a life that glorifies God. And again, maybe we don't even know it, because maybe we've convinced ourselves that we're okay. And we've spent years lying to ourselves and justifying our actions or our lack of action. So let me, let me give you a tip as we get started is to help you out this morning. This is my Jeff Foxworthy portion of the sermon. I'm, I think, you know, most of the people over here and here are probably like, I have no, I have no idea that, who that is. So for the youngsters, Jeff Foxworthy was a, a comedian who, you know, gave people tips to help them understand they were a redneck. <laughs> and you might be a redneck if. And so, so I'm going to give you a tip to help you see if you are stagnant from a change in growth perspective. And it's, it's, it's very simple. It's, I wish it was funny. It's not funny. It's just honest and true. But if you continue to deal with the same issues over and over in your life, then you might be change resistant. If you're still struggling with the same things today that you struggled with years ago, well, that's probably something to look at. And listen, I get it. We all have different weaknesses and different things to where, okay, this is an, this is an issue for me. Okay, yes, right, but, but we, the, the, the main thing of life is to be able to recognize those things so that we are able to grow past them, that we're able to seek the Lord in them. So, you know, that, that's where we need to be. So, because the, the truth is growth and change are always possible. And actually should be expected through the Lord. So don't excuse your sin and apathy towards chains. So maybe you have a particular sin or sins that you just can't seem to get victory over. You know, maybe you deal with, you know, conflict in your marriage, relationships, whatever. Listen, at some point, you need to look in the mirror. Because it cannot be somebody else's fault every time. And listen to me very carefully. And and I mean this from, you know, a point of love. It's not the liquor store's fault if you are an alcoholic. And I don't say that flippantly or without care. But at some point, you need to look at yourself in the mirror. And if you look back over your life and you see a consistent stream of negativity, sinful activity, well, that's a problem. And you need to seek change this morning. You need to quit making excuses for yourself and repent and lay the same foundation that we're going to see in Cornelius that will prepare you for the change that you need in your life. So let's look at, we're just going to look at the first eight verses this morning, Acts chapter 10, and we're going to see what this preparation is all about. So follow along with me, Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1, 
The Bible says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to teach us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Uh, for the time that we have to gather together this morning. Thank you for the, everybody that's here and, and the assembly that we have as, as a body of believers to come to set this time aside, to this you know, first day of the week, to come and to focus on you and to hear from you out of your word. Lord, I don't have anything to say from me, but Lord, I trust that you have something to say to all of us, starting with me. And so, Lord, I pray that you do just that, and I pray that, that your Holy Spirit does the work that only he can do as we input the Word of God into our life, and, and he uses that to, to mold us more and more into your image. So, Lord, I pray that everything that is said is true to your Word. I pray that you are honored and glorified through it, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I've mentioned many times already, what we just read is the beginning it's a, of, a, of a much longer narrative, right? A, all the way through the rest of this chapter, actually into even chapter 11, you see you know, the story recounted again. So it's a much longer narrative, and it involves the salvation of Cornelius and what that means for the Gentiles. But before any of that happens, again, the men involved, both men, need to be prepared. And so as, as we learn what God does with Cornelius and Peter next week, you're going to see the principles of what God does with everybody who's willing to change or help someone. Through change, because we have a receiver in Cornelius, and next week we'll have a messenger in Peter. And we're going to see how God prepares the receiver who's going to get the gospel, and how God prepares the messenger who's going to give it, and then in God's absolute perfect moment of time, he brings the two together. But we'll, we'll get to all that soon enough. So today we're going to study this man named Cornelius. And we learn a little bit about him just here in, the, in these first couple of verses. It's, it's, very, it's very interesting to me. You know, I, I think maybe it's weird thoughts, you know, um, sometimes. But, like, I look at, like, the first two verses of Acts chapter 10, right? And, and, and see this guy Cornelius, who never, I'm sure, dreamed about being in, you know, what ultimately is, is God's word. And his entire life up to that point is summed up in two verses. And that's a little scary for me, if I'll be honest. Because actually, even though at this point he's not a saved man, there's actually, God has very positive things to say about him. See that in verse 2. And so, like, you know, I look at, at me and I look at myself and I, and I, you know, and I ask, if God were to sum up my life, or if another author, you know, Luke wrote the book of Acts, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, but if, if someone wrote the story of my life up to this point, and it consisted of, 20-some words. What would it say? It's a little scary. If someone, you know, someone else, not you, wrote the story of your life, what would it say? Would it say things similar to Cornelius? Would it say something different? What, what is it that it would say? I'm not sure what we got going on there. Am I good? But I think we should ask ourselves, I think we should ask our, the, ourselves those question, questions. And we learned that he lived in a place called Caesarea. And Caesarea was where the Roman government had their headquarters or, or their capital in Judea. It's where Pilate lived, Pilate who tried Jesus. It was a military outpost populated mostly by Gentiles, including this centurion named Cornelius. And, and while he lived in, in Caesarea, he was an Italian, likely Roman, he was the leader of a group of 100 
Italian soldiers, a centurion, a century, you know, where we get our word century, it means 100. So he led a group of 100 Italian soldiers. That is the Italian band. That wasn't, you know, a group that played Italian music. <laughs> they were soldiers. But when we get to verse 2, we see the first way in which Cornelius was prepared for the change to come. And if we want lasting change in our life, this is the first step we need to take as well. And that is that he was receptive to truth. He was receptive to truth. Look at verse 2. And again, remember, Cornelius was not a saved man at this point. But he did desire, obviously desired the Lord's way in his life. So he was receptive to the truth that he had. And he did what he thought was right. Because in verse 2, the Bible says he was a devout man. And one that feared God with all his house. Which gave, and which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. There's some positive things. There's some good things he says about him. So he wasn't a saved man, but he was a, certainly a religious man. And there are many people out there just like Cornelius. And they are good religious people, but they're not saved. And, and the truth is, with them, they may or may not be interested in getting saved. Some, some do just like their religion. That principle can even be true of us as saved people as well. Some of us don't want real change. We don't want to look ourselves in the mirror, but we do want to appear, spirit, appear spiritual to everyone else and want to feel good about ourselves. So religion then ultimately takes the place of relationship. But for Cornelius, that wasn't the case. His heart was right. His desire was right. He just didn't know what he needed to know yet. And in fact, in many ways, he lived a better life than many Christians do today. But he was still missing a true relationship with God. And we know that to be true because when Peter recounts this story, when we get to chapter 11, Peter recounts the story. He recounted how Cornelius admitted to him that he wasn't saved. So in Acts chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, this is Peter speaking, says, And he, Cornelius, showed us how he had seen an angel in his house which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words, thereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. So he obviously wasn't saved at this point. So while Cornelius wasn't a Jew even, in some ways he was like many of the Jews that Paul described in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Just listen to what Paul says about that group. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And there's no doubt that Cornelius had a zeal for God. He had his house in line. He supported the ministries. He gave alms to the people. And the people were not just the poor in general, they were the poor Jews specifically that the local synagogue would have ministered to. That's why Acts 10 verse 22 later in this chapter says, And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews. So this was a good dude. And he had something real to offer. He was doing a good work. He was helping people in a physical way. And so he could have been satisfied. And he could have just felt good about himself. But he didn't because he didn't let himself become the authority. He was receptive to truth. He had a willing heart to do whatever it was that was revealed to him. And all he knew at this point was what the law said to do. So even as a non-Jew, he was doing it. And so he would have been a, a proselyte Jew in the sense that he feared the true God of Israel and adhered to the law as, as, as you know, much as he could. But he would not have been a full proselyte Jew. Because according to Acts 10.4, his prayers and his alms were his sacrifice. He didn't bring actual sacrifices to the temple. He was part of the group of Gentiles that, that feared God. Right, that was part of the description of him in verse 2. And we will see Paul refer to that group. There's a specific group of Gentiles that feared God. He refers to them in Acts 13, verse 16. We'll talk about that when we get there. 
And so this would have been the group that, that Paul usually talked to first when he went into the synagogues. We know that he went to the synagogues first. And he talked to them because they were receptive to truth. And this is a must. This is the foundation of change. Whether that change is ultimately salvation or growing in the Lord as a saved person. Because listen, and, and this is on your outline sheet. If you are unwilling to receive truth, even, or, or I should say, especially when it's hard truth, then you're not prepared for change. So if you're unwilling to receive the truth of God's word, even if that's a hard truth and, and you've got to look yourself in the mirror, well, then you're not prepared to change. And listen, again, that's hard for all of us, starting with this guy right here. It's tough to think about and reckon with the fact that maybe, just maybe, we're wrong. Or we're in the wrong. It's easiest for always to think that other people are wrong, but not us. And that's especially true as it relates to our service to the Lord. But it is a characteristic of those who are godly. They're willing to be honest and receptive to the truth. You see it with David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Man, when was the last time you prayed that prayer? It's not easy if it is a true and honest prayer. Because then you have to face the facts regarding the truth of what God's word says about you. Even if it's truth you don't like. You also see it with Job. Even in the midst of what he was going through. In Job 31 verses 5 and 6 he said, If I've walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit, let me be weighed in an even balance, that God may know mine integrity. And again, man, that, is, that can be hard. But when you have this attitude, and you truly desire the truth, then God will give that truth to you. It happened for Cornelius, and it can happen for you. One of the great promises of the Bible is one we find in Deuteronomy 4.29. It says, But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. And if thou seek him with all thine heart and with all thy soul. And for an honest and sincere seeker, we will find him. The problem is, is we don't really seek him with all of our heart, with all of our soul all the time. Because we don't, want to, we don't really want to know the truth of what that means. Listen carefully what David said in Psalm 119 verse 2. He said, blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. You see, seeking truth is, is the key. And it's a continual thing. It's, that's, it's not just something we do once and then we found it. Right? And, and, and then we're done. No, maybe you are keeping his testimonies today. But that doesn't mean you will tomorrow. And if you don't seek him consistently with your whole heart being receptive to that truth, then you're in danger. And you can still be doing good things, keeping his testimonies. So you could be doing what you knew to do yesterday. But if you don't seek him in this way, you won't know if he wants you to be doing something else today. You see, Cornelius could have been satisfied. He could have been satisfied with following the law, giving alms, praying prayers, doing the religious activity of the day, but he wasn't. And that's the foundation for change, being receptive to the truth of God's word and what it means for you today. But listen, I've said it many, many times already. It's a hard thing to do. And it can be difficult for a few different reasons, partly because of our flesh. That's usually the main reason. Most of the time we create our own problems. But sometimes it's not easy because there are a lot of voices out there saying a lot of different things. So the world is giving you their input on what is right and what is true. And your friends are doing the same thing. Even your enemies will try to control your thinking. And sometimes it can be a little difficult to navigate through what God is actually saying. Listen, most heresy, we know this, most heresy isn't made up out of thin air. It's found in the Bible, it's just taken out of context and misapplied. 
So it can be difficult sometimes to navigate through that. So if you want real change, you need to be able to receive the truth. But then second, you need to know what that truth is. So you need to recognize God's voice. You need to be able to recognize God's voice. And so watch this play out in our text. Cornelius was a devout man who feared the Lord. He was living out the truth that he knew. He was a true and honest seeker. So God gave Cornelius more light through a vision. Look at verse 3. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And when it says there that he saw in a vision evidently, that is, that's not bringing into question what he saw. That's like, I'm not sure what he saw. No, it's saying that what he saw was evident. It was plain. It was clearly understood. And again, you need to understand that this was during this transition time, right? So God used visions during that transition time, but he no longer uses them today. Later in this chapter, we're going to see more speaking in tongues like we did in Acts chapter 2, and we talked about that in some detail there. You know, valid at that time, no longer active today because God speaks to us through his word. This is the sole source of truth. It is complete. It was inspired. It's preserved for us today. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10, that charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's fairly clear. You know, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, and that which is in part shall be done away. And, and that which is perfect has come in the form of a book that we can hold in our hands right here and right now. And that wasn't true when Acts chapter 10 was occurring, even when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians there. So God used other methods during that time. But what is the same is that in order to receive truth, we have to recognize truth. And Cornelius recognized the voice of God immediately. Because when he saw the vision, how did he respond? Well, he responded appropriately. He said he was scared. <laughs> he was afraid. Well, I mean, I, you know, that makes some sense to me. I think, I think you know, we all think we're, you know, big and tough. Until well, you're standing face to face with Jesus, eh, maybe you won't feel quite as tough then. But he's, you know, he's, he's, he's afraid, and that's an appropriate fear of the Lord. We don't, we don't have time to talk about that. But, but look at what he said. He said, what is it, Lord? He knew exactly who he was talking to and who was talking to him. And you say, well, yeah, of course he did. It's a vision. You know, who, do you, who do you think it would be? Well, you might be surprised. But listen, not everybody can discern even Saul, the, the great apostle Paul, when God appeared to him, when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, do you remember how he responded? In Acts 9, he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You see, Saul wasn't even sure who he was talking to. He did call him Lord, but he said, Who art thou? And he came to find out real quick. I mean, Jesus answered him. And his life was never the same after that encounter. But he didn't recognize the Lord's voice when he first started talking. And that principle, in, in principle, can ring true in our life as well. And it, and it looks like this, that, you know, we might say that we want truth and we want to do things the Lord's way, but when he speaks to us through his word, through a sermon, through a conversation, we don't always recognize it as truth. Or at least not enough for it to penetrate our hearts to the point of change. And we can be like those that Justin talked about last week, those who are dull of hearing. You see that in Hebrews chapter 5. And what's maybe even worse than that is when we think that something is true that isn't true. Right? Like I said, there are a lot of voices out there, and the world's telling us a lot of different things. And sometimes we'll cling to something like that, that the world's telling us, and we'll think it's truth, and it's not. And so we listen to the voice of the world, we listen to our own flesh, and we think that what the world is telling us, and we think that what our flesh is telling us is, is the truth when it's not, and it's a lie. And listen, and this is on your outline sheet, 
we're prone to lie to ourselves with our feelings and recognize those feelings as truth. Listen, the, the world will make us feel the way we want to feel. Our, our flesh will actually do the same thing. And so we're prone to then lie to ourselves and hear voices that aren't God's voice. And they make us feel a certain way, and we like that feeling. And so we recognize those feelings as truth. And that can be very dangerous. It can be very dangerous. David dealt with this thing, this very thing in Psalm 42 when he was dealing with a difficult situation and a difficult truth. And listen to what he does and what he says in Psalm 42, verse 5. He says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. This chapter, Psalm 42 and 43, I think are, are maybe the two key chapters in the Bible dealing with the issue of depression, but, but it, it speaks to something much bigger than that. And, and you might not notice it at first, but I want you to pay close attention to what is going on here because David is dealing with a, a, a time of despair and a difficult truth that he's dealing with, and he addresses himself. He asks himself a question. He's not crazy, but he is talking to himself. And in doing so, he discovers a cure. He asks himself, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? And this gets to the main problem in the whole matter of, of listening to our feelings and being fooled regarding what is true. And that is that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Right? Think about, think about that for just a second, right? I know that might not make sense at first, but think about that to a second. We allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. So what I mean by that is we listen to our feelings instead of talking to our feelings. David, in effect, says, self, listen up to what I have to say. Why are you so cast down? Why are you acting this way? Well, but because it feels a certain way. Because it feels true. It feels this thing. I feel this way. Okay, but is it God's voice that you are listening to? Or is it your own? And if it's your own, you need to instead talk to it and remind it of God's truth. Whether you feel it or not, and this gets back to where we started because the main art in the matter of growth and change is to know how to honestly examine yourself. This again, it's what, what Justin talked about last week. It's so hard. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourself whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. That's what, I, mean, I love that verse, you know, and I've, I've talked about this before, but you know, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, you know, prove all things. And according to this verse, that even means yourself. Why do you have to prove yourself? Why do we have to prove ourselves? Because we can't trust ourselves. So prove it out. Examine and be honest and prove yourself out. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. So we are to handle ourselves and to question ourselves and preach to ourselves. And we must remind ourselves that truth is only found in God's Word. So we better listen to that voice first and foremost. And how do you do it? Again, there are a lot of voices out there. Well, how do you do it? Well, it starts very simply. As you honestly ask God for it. And again, that's very simple. But that's where it starts. And I say that because when did verse 3 say that this vision came to Cornelius? It came in the ninth hour, right? And do you remember anything specific about the ninth hour from when we were in Acts chapter 3? If not, let me remind you. Acts 3, 1 says, Now Peter and John went up together under the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. See, the Jews had three times of prayer throughout the day. You can see that, for example, Daniel 6.10. We don't read it, that verse. You can pop Daniel 6.10 up there. talks about the three times that we have prayer. Do we not have that verse? Do we not have Daniel 6.10? Um, oh, there it is. So, yeah, so he kneeled upon his knees three times a day. 
and prayed, right? So the, the Jews, they had three. They had their morning prayer, the afternoon prayer, the evening prayer. It would be 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m. And the ninth hour, according to the Jewish clock and calendar, is 3 p.m. So the Jewish workday and the Jewish day actually starts at 6 p.m., but then 12-hour shifts. Jewish workday starts at 6 a.m. The ninth hour would be 3 p.m. So that was, you know, that was the hour of prayer, one of, one of the hours of prayer. And Cornelius was living the Jewish lifestyle under the law the best he knew how. So that means he was praying. He even says it specifically later in the chapter, Acts 10, verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. You see, it's no coincidence that God's vision came to Cornelius at the same time that Cornelius was seeking the Lord in prayer. And this right here is absolutely the key to recognizing the voice of God versus all of the other voices out there, including your own. And that is simply but honestly asking the Lord to reveal it to you. And we can know that Cornelius was honestly seeking the Lord through his prayers because his prayers got the attention of the Lord. In verse 4, the, Lord, the angel of God told Cornelius, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And that just means God, God remembered him. He remembered all those prayers and all those good deeds. And he knew that Cornelius was sincere in seeking out the truth. So he answered him according to the promise of Deuteronomy 4.29 that we read earlier. And when the Lord answered him, he told Cornelius exactly what he needed to do for eternal change to occur. Now, it's a process but he told him what the first step was. Look at verse 5. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodged with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And what's very interesting to me here are not the instructions themselves per se, but the details surrounding the instructions. Because I want you to think about those instructions for a second. The Lord said, Cornelius, there's a guy in Joppa, which is, again, about 30 miles away. You need to go talk to him. So you need to send some guys to go get him and bring him back to Caesarea so you can talk to this guy. So here's the point and the third step for lasting change. And that's you need to relinquish control. You need to relinquish control. Because Cornelius was given instructions that did not include him. He wasn't involved in these instructions other than sending guys. And, and in addition to that, he had to do something that took some time. We just learned from Acts 10.30 that this process took four days. Again, 30 miles, one way, you know, no cars. You know, this is a process. So he had to show some patience. And he had to trust the Lord to obey, even when it didn't make logical sense from a human perspective. And I say that for two reasons. The first reason is because the time could have been cut in half if the Lord would have just sent Cornelius to Joppa. Why couldn't they have talked there? See, if Cornelius hadn't relinquished the control, I think he would have said, Lord, I'll just go see him. Yeah, I, I want to talk to that guy. I'll just go take care of it. It'll, take, it'll just take me two days to get there. I'll, I'll even take the guys with me. But I don't have to wait for them to bring him back here. But that's not what the Lord asked of him. The Lord wanted him to wait. And that is such a lost art in today's Christianity. Because it's a lost art in our society. I mean, our, our society, you know, we live in a society that everything is just at the tip of our, you know, tip of our nose, you know, in this, you know, demonic phone, you know, immediately. And, and everything is just, is right there. That is, that is our culture. And, and what that does, what we don't even know that it's doing, is that it allows us to keep control, right? We don't have to exhibit patience. We don't have to exhibit, you know, we don't have to let go of things. It's just right there. We can control it. And we like it. We like that a lot. And we forget that the pattern of hope starts with patience. We looked at Romans 15 a few weeks ago, but Romans 15, 4, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of scriptures, might have hope. Right? It starts with patience. We forget that Lamentations 3.25 tells us that the Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. And, and you know just as well as I do that waiting on the Lord isn't you know, one of our favorite pastimes. But the truth is, for most of us, patience isn't our strongest virtue. Because we want to be in control. We don't, we don't like to wait because that 
it's out of our control. And so we don't like it when we're not. Because the truth is we don't trust others and we don't trust the Lord. It, it's, it's, listen, there are certain things like this. This is where we're so selective in how we believe the Bible. Because the Bible says very clearly the importance of patience and these sort of things. And then we'll, you know, we'll joke. Eh, you know, I'm just not a very patient man. Well, the Bible says you should be. Oh, what do you, I don't know. What do you want me to tell you? Like, let me laugh with you? The, the Bible says it's very important. This is how God works. God does not work on our timing. Abraham waited 25 years from the time God promised in a seed until Isaac was born. Joseph waited some 13 years before his dreams came to fruition, in jail part of that time. Moses waited 40 years in the desert before God called him to lead his people out of Egypt. David waited over 14 years from his anointing to be king, to actually becoming king. Even Jesus waited 30 years before he started his public ministry. And yet, we think things should happen immediately, and God needs to answer all of our prayers now. That's kind of presumptuous, isn't it? It's kind of arrogant, isn't it? Listen, God knows what we need, and he knows when we need it. In Hebrews 6, verses 10 through 12, it tells us, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. God doesn't forget. He knows which ye have showed toward his name, and in, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full, assur full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, the men and women that God has used throughout history as they were trusting in his promises have exhibited both faith and patience in him. And let me be honest with you, when it comes to Christians that I know, so that means you, and that means me, when it comes to us and God using us or not using us, I don't think faith is our main problem. I think we have some faith. I think we even have faith in this book. But I think we struggle with patience and control. And I think understanding that biblical concept of what those things mean and why they are so important, and we make excuses for ourselves because it's just not the way I am. I don't care. I care what the Bible says. And it's so important to give him control. And just because we don't understand it, because it doesn't make sense to us, we won't relinquish control. So we don't grow and we don't change. So trusting God's timing is something for us to work on. But there's a second aspect of this that doesn't make sense from a human logic standpoint either. Right? So he's, he has to send the men to Joppa to go get Peter and bring him back to Caesarea where Philip the evangelist lived. The same Philip that ministered to the Samaritans and led the Ethiopian youth to the Lord in Acts chapter 8. Listen to how Acts chapter 8 ended. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all cities till he came to Caesarea. Okay, then all the way down in, verse, in Acts 21, Philip is still, still there. That's where he moved to, living in Caesarea. And the next day when we were of Paul's company, departed and came into Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And if Cornelius had not relinquished control, again, a natural response to God would have been, hey, why don't I just go talk to Philip? I'm sure he can help me. Like he helped the Ethiopian eunuch, and we can't know for sure if they knew each other, but there's a high probability Cornelius, that Cornelius would have known him. I mean, at least known of Philip. He was known as Philip the Evangelist. <laughs> Means he probably wasn't shy about his faith. And Cornelius was a devout man. They could have even gone to the same synagogue. But, and, and the reason why, we know the reason why God didn't use Philip. It goes back to the keys to the kingdom of heaven that were given to Peter. We talked about that in the introduction. But Cornelius wouldn't have known about that. Peter might not have even known the depth of what God was doing through him. But the point of all this is Cornelius didn't question anything because he didn't try to keep control. And that is just a great lesson for us. If you struggle in this area, give it up. Trust the Lord is working because he always is in some ways, working behind the scenes in ways that we can't even see and that we don't even know. 
that was true of this situation. He was working behind the scenes in Peter's life in a way that Cornelius knew nothing about. You'll see that in detail next Sunday. And that's just God. He's working in ways that we do not know and we cannot see. And yet, we think it will be better if we keep control. And I hate to burst your bubble, but he is better at being God than you. <laughs> he's, be, he's way better at being God than me. So we should let him do his job. And then we should just do our job. And that brings us to the fourth step to prepare for change. And that is just very simply to respond obediently. That is just do the new truth that God has revealed to you. Even if you don't like it, even if you don't understand it, even if you don't agree with it, if it was God's voice, then you need to do it. That's what Cornelius did. No questions asked, just obedience. Look at verse 7. And when the angel spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. The angel told him what to do. As soon as the angel left, he called the guys in and said, hey, go get, go get, go get this guy named Simon Peter. I got to talk to him. He just obeyed. And that was the last step, but, you know, maybe it's the most important one. Because the truth is, you can be receptive to truth, you can recognize truth or God's voice, and you can relinquish control, but if you don't take the final step and do what God is telling you to do, then no growth will occur. No change will take place. And as we work to a close here, that's really the question on the table for all of us. Will you just do what it is that God is asking you to do? Will you respond obediently? Because at the end of the day, this is the main problem we have. And maybe it does occur, actually, because we aren't receptive to truth, or maybe we can't recognize what truth is, or we believe lies about ourselves instead of the truth. Or maybe at the end of the day, we can't relinquish control of a situation, a besetting sin, a prideful heart. We can't just give those things over to God and trust him to work and go about being who we need to be for his glory. Whatever it is, all of those things just lead to disobedience. And our life is about obedience to what God is asking us to do today. It's better to obey than sacrifice. So let me ask you, what are you going to do today with what God is telling you? Like, did you hear his voice today? I don't, I don't want you to hear my voice. I can lie to you. I don't try to, but I certainly can. Did you hear God's voice today? Was any truth presented that showed you that maybe you're not prepared for growth like you need to be? If so, can I just ask you to take a step? To obey what God's telling you to do? To get with him today? To get it right with him? And maybe you need to take a step out of the pew and come forward while we're singing to get right with God. And I know we don't do that a lot around here. You know, we don't, you know, we don't push that, that sort of thing. And I would never want anyone to ever do that out of emotion or out of a guilt trip. But I also do know the power of drawing a line in the sand and dying to yourself and squashing your pride for the Lord's glory. There's something to that. So if you need to get right with the Lord today, why don't you respond with obedience however it is that he's asking you to do it?